Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, before we get started today, I want to make sure that everyone has seen the news of the last 24 to 48 hours. The types of things that Republican leaders are doing in states like Florida and Texas and what they're going to do next. Now is the time, guys, to join the fight. I am asking you to join us here at the Lincoln Project. Sign up at lincolnproject.us. Follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. Send us an email if you believe you can make a difference in your state. Info at lincolnproject.us. Guys, the time for sitting on the couch is over. Now is the time to get in the fight. I hope you'll join us. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Devin Murphy-Anderson and Alex Barriers, the co-founders of Me Vicino, a voting rights organization in Florida that's on a mission to register, educate, and empower Black, Brown, and first-time voters who've been historically and systematically marginalized, silenced, or ignored. Devin and Alex, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having us, Reed. Thanks, Reed. We're happy to be here. Well, listen, guys, today I want to talk through all the work you guys are doing at Me Vicino, especially through your voter registration efforts, as well as I guess we'll call it the continued failure of Ron DeSantis around children and economic impacts of COVID-19. But first, you know, you guys are unique because you sort of have the entrepreneurial spirit that certainly we at the Lincoln Project take to heart. So I want to get a little bit into y'all's backgrounds first. So from what I understand, you know, Alex, you were at once a pretty successful boxer And Devin, you owned a lobster boat in Maine. Do I have that right? You sure do. I mean, I always joke that I'm the boxer, but nobody seems to believe me. I mean, we work in politics. It's pretty similar. Well, I mean, you can be one metaphorically, of course. (laughs) All right. So, Devin, are you a Mainer by birth? I sure am. Yep. I was born and raised in Maine. My dad's family lobsters, so myself and my siblings grew up on the water. I think that's really where I first learned a lot about what we consider to be American values. It's work hard, keep your head down, stay humble, and at all costs, you protect your family and those you love, and that's it. And you know, we see that every single day in the communities and the families that we work with here in Florida. And I know that we bring that to the table every day in our work, which people come here to this country to work hard, to keep their heads down, to stay humble, and to protect their children. The most well-known saying in my household is KBKF, which means keep them baited and keep the faith. When you're lobstering, you bait up your traps every single day. And so what that means is you show up to work every single day. If it's raining or if it's sunny and you put bait on your traps, you work hard and you have faith in that ability to work hard and you leave the rest up to faith and God. And I really think that that is at the core of our country and core of our work at Mivacino. Because lobsters are not likely to sort of wander into your trap by accident. Right? <laughs> no, Reed, they aren't. But if they did, that would be a heck of a lot easier. I can tell you that much. <laughs> right, right. And Alex, so you grew up practicing the, what they call the sweet science, which 
I have done in practice, but I have never actually sparred or anything close to it. So, but I think Devin's right that there are sometimes it feels like being in the ring and being in politics are similar, certainly spiritually. But how did you get from the boxing gym to the political arena? You know, I grew up in Broward County. I'm a Florida native. I'm Puerto Rican. I'm Cuban. I really understand what it's like to, you know, be part of the community, feel disconnected from, you know, politics and politicians and feel like you don't have a lot of options in life, which is really what brought me to boxing. It's also kind of in the blood, right? Cubans, Puerto Ricans are just known for boxing. We have a, just a love for the sport and just with all the fighting at home, it just seemed like a natural <laughs> fit, right? So, right. <laughs> so I find myself in a boxing ring actually at a late age. You know, I was a young guy and a lot of getting in a lot of trouble doing all the wrong things. And a guy named Stu Acton, I'll never forget Stu. He was a volunteer with the Police Athletic League and kind of took me under his wing, brought me into the gym, taught me boxing, you know, and just really mentored a young man that was in need of a father figure. So I put a lot of my time, you know, into the sport and that really brought me to volunteerism and just showed me how much of a difference a single person can make in people's lives. Right. Cause I wasn't the only kid that Stu was, you know, having an impact on. I was very fortunate to be able to make any kind of money in the sport because it is a tough sport, you know, between training camps. I was waiting for some blood to heal up in my eye. My left eye was filled with blood for a while and I was waiting for that to clean itself up. And I wanted to get involved in the community to bring boxing into Palm Beach County because, you know, we had a PAL here, a police athletic league, but they had moved around a couple of times because they had some funding challenges. So, um, you know, I tried to start a foundation, which I did to start a boxing gym. Now that turned out to be a lot more challenging than I thought, you know, it's obviously funding is a serious issue, but I still wanted to do some good. And I found that there were a lot easier ways to make that happen. Right. And one of those ways was through my son's school. There was a little girl named Daniela that would come over every Friday and have pizza after school. And one day Daniela had these white boxes with her and I thought they were candy bars. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm old. I remember selling candy bars as a kid, as a fundraiser. And I was like, wow, Daniel, they got you guys out here selling all kinds of candy. And she's like, no, Mr. Barrios, this is food. And I was, what do you mean this is food? And she opened it up and it's, you know, dried soup and food from the school. And, you know, Daniela's mom worked two jobs. I was just blown away that working people could have so much need. And so, you know, I used my foundation to uh, start a teacher supply drive for the school, you know, to bring them the materials and the supplies that they need, knowing that teachers reach into their own pocket to take care of our kids and our community. And in the course of organizing that, this happened, you know, during a gubernatorial, came across a couple political candidates. They wanted to coordinate with me as well and ended up working in politics. It's just, it's, it's kind of a crazy story. And now, you know, it took me from a volunteer wanting to make a difference to, you know, starting an organization to empower people, create political and economic power in marginalized communities, just like the one that I grew up in. Well, and I think both the boxing ring and I think the lobster boat, there's certainly physical parallels, right? Which is you get up very, very early. A lot of times you spend a lot of time in places you'd probably rather not be. The weather has an entirely too great effect on the outcome and that you can do everything you mean to do. You can practice as much as you can. And there are going to be circumstances beyond your control that have a defining impact on whatever it is, the work you've done. Now, in politics, that means you can do everything right. You can knock on all your doors. You can raise all the money. And on that Tuesday in November, something that you could never have expected, that exigent circumstance, 
makes all the difference in the world. And I think that's part of the sort of Sisyphusian, if that's a word, aspect of all of these things, right? Is that you, you push that rock up the hill no matter what, because you believe in it. And Devin, as you talked about, whether or not that's because it's your family and your faith and it's your business, or Alex, as you talked about, because you were in need of something that was going to provide you that path to something new, maybe something better. And so this is where we've gone. So guys, I want to talk a little bit about what Me Vecino does, how you came to start it, and where you guys are now and the kind of work you're doing. And, and also, you know, we talked last week for a little while, I want to hear about some of the challenges you're facing as well. Essentially, we are a grassroots, data-driven nonprofit here in Florida that is focused on registering our communities of color to vote. We do a few things differently than other organizations. The number one thing is we do vote-by-mail enrollment as well on the spot. So we have a 90% conversion rate. Traditionally, here in Florida, you know, vote-by-mail enrollment is run as a separate phase of any campaign. And this leads to this larger feeling, especially in communities of color, of this very transactional nature between candidates, campaigns, and our communities of color. And so a part of why we do this is not only to increase access to the ballot box, because if you have a vote by mail ballot being mailed to your house, you have a 92% chance of voting without a VBM, a vote by mail ballot, you've got a 55% chance of voting. So it's not only for that, but it's also to increase this trust between our work and our communities. And that's seriously something we see play out on election day over and over again. It's not one of these things like you talked about, Reed, that you can't anticipate. It's something that is a trend that is vocalized over and over again. And we really want to address that. The second thing that we do differently is we only hire from within the community. So it's very Obama style, very Stacey Abrams style. We empower people from within the community to organize their own neighbors and their own neighborhoods. It leads to a higher registration rate of people of color. 100% of our staff are native Spanish speakers and 100% of our staff are minorities. You know, Devin's exactly right about some of the challenges that we've been overcoming and addressing with this program. You know, for myself, you know, when I started in this, just going from the volunteer to, you know, being involved in politics, you know, my motivation was very simple. You know, I wanted to make a safer community for my son and I wanted to give back because I understand what it's like to be that young man that doesn't feel connected, doesn't feel like I have a voice, doesn't feel like I can make a difference or that my vote even mattered. You know, I understand what it's like to be in that situation and I wanted to take ownership of that. So, you know, we work in very different departments. Devin's in finance. I work in field, which basically is, you know, voter engagement. And I wanted to be that bridge. So, you know, I work exclusively in the communities that people don't go to, the party doesn't go to. There's always been an absence of the party over time here because these are rough neighborhoods. And so, you know, you don't see a lot of campaigning even when the elections do come. And so there is this transactional sense that, you know, campaigns and candidates don't have our interests in mind. And I wanted to change that. I wanted to turn that around. I wanted people to understand that their voice does matter. Their vote does matter. This is a right. It's an American right, you know, and we need to exercise that right. It's something that, you know, we need to fully understand. It's very powerful and our vote really does matter. So that was the work that I started doing. I interacted with Devin, you know, at the party, you know, we saw the way that things, you know, went last cycle. We were really unhappy with some of what to us was common sense gaps in the way politics and the community were, you know, interacting to each other. And so like Devin outlined, the phases of these campaigns don't make sense. They come across as transactional 30, 60 days before an election. Suddenly a candidate has an interest in your community, which, you know, inherently we can recognize that that's not genuine. And, you know, people are not dumb. 
they know when it's not real. So Devin, that was one of the questions I wanted to ask, which is being the finance director at the Democratic Party of Florida is a big job. And Alex, I know that you worked on at least one national campaign, if not other statewide campaigns. So you guys have chosen to step outside the sort of traditional Democratic superstructure and start this on your own. You know, was it simply from the kind of frustration that Alex expressed or what else sort of drove you all to decide that Mi Vecino was the vehicle that you thought was better suited to accomplish these goals? Both Alex and I are very driven people and we're in this for the right reason. So when we were talking on election night and we knew that we were going to lose, we started talking about, okay, what other organizations were doing something better than what the party was doing? And the answer to that question, and I don't mean this as a knock to anybody, but the answer to that question is no one. And when we didn't see someone doing it better, we're like, F it, we'll do it ourselves. But let me be clear when you say that it wasn't there was no one doing it better than the party. It's just that the party was at a pretty low level. And you're like, there's got to be a better way to do this. And I think my biggest fear for the 2020 cycle was the fundraising side of this, because, as you know, people are really walking away from Florida and they're writing Florida off and the political pundits and the headlines are just saying, you know, this is a red state and it's not a red state, number one. And number two, what are you going to do? You're not going to fight. We're just going to concede this state and become the next Texas. I mean, that's not an option in my mind. That's not an option in Alex's mind. We live here. These are our communities. And so we chose to stay and fight. And my biggest goal with Mi Vecino was to give donors a reason to invest in this state. It wasn't just a reason to invest in us and our work. It's proof that Florida is winnable. It's proof that there is a better way to do voter contact that is more effective, more efficient, and has a higher ROI. And that is exactly what we have done. Within a first month of us launching, we became the number one voter registration organization in this entire state, and we've held that title ever since. Now, the Republicans are making a huge multi-million dollar investment right now, and they're about to take that title from us, and we are very, very grudgingly going to give that over. But this war is not anywhere far from over. And that's, again, the bridge that we're trying to build here is to say to national donors, look, we don't need 100 million of your dollars, right? We just want you know, a few thousand dollars to prove to you that we can do this better. And then you make your decision, but don't walk away before you've really seen what people are capable of when there's drive and passion and you're in it for the right reasons. And so, Alex, you know, as someone who's a native Floridian and who works in the field and has worked in the field, you know, for your entire career, either when you were doing the foundation piece or now in politics, what are some of the things that you've seen, you know, whether or not it's from your own party or the national representatives that tend to reinforce that transactional nature. Listen, I'm not a Republican anymore, but that was the same way. I mean, Republicans are the same way, right? Like no one pays attention to actual voters for about one year and 48 weeks, right? And then the last four to six, eight weeks of a campaign, suddenly like voters are the most important thing, but people aren't stupid, right? Like they get it. So what have you seen that has been sometimes counterproductive to the kind of work that should have been done and that you're even still trying to do? Yeah. So, you know, what you're outlining, we see that in even our hiring process. You know, we have people on our team that some of them have worked for every organization in Central Florida at one point or another, because when the elections come, the jobs come. But it's very short term. They don't have stability. You know, they can't count on that income. And that's part of what we do at Mibusino is create that stability in people's lives. Give them an opportunity to provide for their family. Give them an opportunity to organize their own communities, take their destiny into their own hands. They know that they're going to have a job for only 60 days. That's so stressful. You know, when you have kids to feed, you have bills to pay, how do you plan your life? How do you live that way? 
they know that that money's not invested in their community. They don't see themselves reflected, you know, in our elected officials, or they don't see themselves represented in the conversation and policy in so many different ways. You know, we saw on January 6th, we saw a mob of people just storm our Capitol. We take a look at that and we think, oh my gosh, like what is happening in our country that we have this kind of stuff going on, but then we're only organizing, we're only talking to elected officials 60 days every two years. You know, we don't feel connected. Right. You know, there has been a widening disconnection between voters and their political process for decades, but I think we're on a razor's edge with it now. And as I think I told you all, and I know I've told the listeners this before too, and Devin, you mentioned this, that the Republicans down there are pouring money into voter registration efforts, which is what folks need to understand, especially if you're either not a professional in politics or you've been more on the Democratic side of the aisle, is that Republicans are relentless, they're dedicated, they're patient, and they will do whatever it takes. And Republicans don't take election season off, right? They're like, oh, it's the off year. You know, I'll go on vacation for six or seven months or quote unquote, I'm exhausted. I don't know how many times you guys have heard that this year. Republicans don't get exhausted. They just reload. And that's what they're going to do, right? Because they understand what you all understand, which is Florida is maybe on the redder side of purple because it's a big state and it's got a lot of Republicans in it, but it's by no means monolithic. But they also understand that Republican registration is dropping through the floor because a lot of people, regular human beings, don't like the crap they say on a daily basis. So they're going to go out and try and make up the difference while making it more difficult for people to vote and doing all of the other things that we're seeing Ron DeSantis and his goons do on a daily basis down there. Absolutely. They hit it from all angles. And that's something that is really important for us to understand moving forward when we try to tackle these elections. We just had SB90 pass a few months ago and signed by DeSantis and, you know, Reed, you brought up, you know, what are some of the challenges we're facing on the ground? I mean, that was number one. I remember the absolute panic we had on the phone. Our people are out there trying to register people to vote and vote by mail. He signs this bill. All of a sudden, it took effect immediately. Those vote by mail enrollment forms were no longer valid. There was a whole new form and not one supervisor of election in this entire state had that form. We couldn't get it anywhere. Nobody had it. Well, and didn't you tell me, too, that when you tried to go to one board of elections office, they didn't even know what the rules were. And they're like, I'm not having anything to do with this. That wasn't even early in the past. That was just recent. That was 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 a couple of weeks ago. And they it's so shady. And the process is so obscure that people just don't even know how it works. And, you know, to be clear, this voter suppression affects everybody. It cuts across all lines. It's affecting all voters. But this has been a decades long project for them. You know, our voter registration edge here in Florida, the Democratic voter registration edge has been shrinking from close to 600,000 to now just 50,000 since we last won at the top of the ticket in 2012 with Obama. And I will give Nikki Fried a shout out. She did pull it off in 2018. She's our one and only statewide (laughs) elected Democrat right now. But the point being that this has been an ongoing project for them, which is while we aren't doing registration, they are. And so it has led to the essential elimination of our voter registration edge here in Florida. Florida really wasn't a red state. We had over 600,000 more registered Democrats here, and we just didn't get off of our enough to do the hard work. And so now here we are. Well, feel free to curse if you want. You're not going to hurt our feelings. (laughs) So Alex, what caused that? What caused that apathy? That's such a complex question. You know, there's definitely not a single answer, but I can tell you from my time, it's multifold, right? There's the assumptions that people make. And the Democrats are certainly, in my experience, very guilty of this. I'm sure others are as well. One of the worst assumptions is that people of color 
are, you know, voting against their interests when they vote Republican or when they hear, you know, what we consider a racist dog whistle and they don't see things the way that we do. And the assumption is that, you know, oh, well, if you're Hispanic, you're going to think Trump is a open racist because of his immigration policies or all the other things that he says. And, you know, Hispanic people don't see themselves in that commentary. You know, when Trump comes out and attacks Hispanics and calls them bad hombres or rapists or, you know, these things, Hispanics see themselves as Americans, you know, and they don't think that Trump is talking about them. You know, so this assumption that as demographics change, that these people are just automatic Democrats is just a false assumption. And something we were talking about, too, Alex and Devin as well, is that the Latino community, which in a state like Texas could be predominantly Mexican, but in a state like Florida, I mean, Alex, how many different Latino ethnicities are there just in Florida? Oh, I don't have a, a number for that on the top of my head, but there's a lot of them. And Florida is very specific and unique in its way. Our Hispanic communities have large densities that you just don't find in other states, and they're diverse. You know, we have something around the neighborhood of 900,000, a million Puerto Ricans in the state of Florida, and over 50% of them are in Central Florida in the I-4 corridor. The Cuban population makes up about 29, 30% of the Hispanic population in Florida, and over 80% of them are in Miami-Dade alone. And then there's Venezuelans. Colombians, Brazilians, you know, it's such a diverse group. And they don't even speak the same language. The Brazilians don't. They don't speak the same language. They use a lot of different slang. So, you know, you can't approach them all the same way. So, you know, these are unique challenges in Florida that you just don't find in other states. Like when we were working in Georgia, we didn't see this type of a melting pot, you know. And so messaging in Florida is very complex. Being present and in the community is incredibly important to be in tune and understand the needs of that community, which is why the work that we're doing so early on and being present over time, building those relationships, overcoming those trust barriers, it's incredibly important. Because that's how we get around this messaging issue. The Democrats suck at messaging. We are just awful at it. And there's this balance that we are trying to walk as a party and just ultimately failing at, especially in Florida, when you have diverse communities and you try to tailor specific messages to each one. And we're like, oh, you're Venezuelan. I'm going to say this to you. You're from El Salvador. Great. I'm going to say this to you. That's not how real life works. People aren't dumb. They understand that it's pandering. And they're like, okay, yeah, F you. I'm going to the other party. Right. But if we have a message that is succinct and resonates across all different communities, which hint, it's the jobs and economy, then all of a sudden you're talking in a language that everybody understands and that everybody can unite behind. That's the unifying thing, right? People don't necessarily care about COVID as it relates to COVID. They care about COVID as it relates to their kids being able to go to school because in a lot of these communities, school isn't just about education, it's about childcare so that the parents can work to make a living and put food on the table. And that goes for all these different issues. As soon as you tie that back to the economy, that's the winning message. And so the other thing, you know, that's important for us when we're making these hires is we have got staff from Venezuela, from El Salvador, from the Dominican Republic. We don't have to tell them, oh, this is how you speak to people. We just sit back and we just let them do their jobs. And look, this is endemic to large political organizations, right? That there's somebody or some very small group of people who sit in a room, usually somewhere inside the beltway. They've got millions of dollars worth of polling and you know other crap at their fingertips. And they say, this is what's gonna work. And then they say, this is what you're gonna tell people. And you say, well, we can do that, but it's not gonna work. And they say, but we live in Washington, DC. <laughs> so we know it's gonna work. 
And then, as you said, you're sitting there on election night. You've known days or weeks ahead of time what was going to happen. And suddenly they're power calling you, power texting you saying, what's happening? What's going on? And we're saying, hey, jerk off. We told you what was going to happen. And you didn't listen. Right. And I think that really is a part of the reason why Alex and I are so successful. We were actually on with your tech team yesterday setting up all of this equipment. And we got the notification from CNN about the high school being on lockdown in North Carolina for a school shooting. And I just, I mean, both of our hearts just dropped. I'm looking at Alex's face. and I'm like, I can't even imagine what's going through his head right now, knowing that there's absolutely nothing in the world that he can do to stop that from being his son's high school. Like that is just heartbreaking. And then at the end of the day, you know, I'm going home to a one bedroom apartment where my little sister is sleeping on the floor. She's working two jobs. She's up at 530 this morning. She's not getting home until 1130 p.m. tonight. Two waitressing jobs. And she cannot afford a one bedroom apartment in this state. Well, I think that's important because these elections do have consequences. These elections do have consequences. And these are the consequences. And last cycle, we saw this happening. We saw this playing out. When I started to say that, you know, we have real serious concerns on our hands here. And, and at that time, I was so sweet and gently naive. I said, <laughs> we should prepare for a recount. Oh, we were so far away from being needing to be worried about a recount, right? I was told, Alex, you're panicking. They don't listen. People don't listen. We, it was an utter failure of leadership. And they somehow are able to wake up every day free of the burden of the consequences of those elections that working class people and everybody else has to pay while they tell themselves they did a great job. You know, and when that alert comes through, I don't know where that school shooting is. I just see there's a school shooting and I'm just paralyzed. So you guys will appreciate this. There's a friend of mine who's a consultant in Texas and we were texting yesterday and I was asking what the hell happened. And he said, well, these guys have been losers for a long time. Talking about consultants down there. He said, the problem is, is that being a loser has never been bad for business. And I think that's right, which is cycle in, cycle out. You can run a big pack. You can be a big consultant. You can raise tens of millions of dollars and there's no sanction for being bad at it. And therefore, you know, people get stuck in their ways. Oh, well, I can't possibly do that because we've never done that before. Or that goes against, you know, this thing or that thing. Or I have people I have to answer to. And I think you guys probably have some sense of this, too, is like the beauty of like the Lincoln Project is the only people we answer to are our supporters. We don't have a president. We don't have a congressman. We don't have an office. And so it's one of those things where we go out and we say, what is the thing we think we need to do today? And we go do it. And I think when we were first introduced to y'all, I think that was the thing that was my favorite about y'all, which is you had basically said, and, and Devin, you were too polite to say it out loud, which was like, fuck all this, right? Y'all are really bad at this and we're just going to go do it ourselves. And that's sort of how we felt now 18 months, almost two years ago, which is like, this ain't going to happen. If we don't find a way to at least get ourselves involved, then we'll go to bed, you know, one night and Donald Trump will be president for a second term. And we'll say we had a chance to do something and we didn't. I think that's exactly right, Reed. And that's another reason why the work that we're doing is just so critical. When we saw what was happening last year, Devin raised records amount of money into the party for it to be spent in just an utter bloodbath of a loss throughout the state. And we correctly predicted what the landscape was going to look like and that there was going to be a vacuum and that folks were going to be sitting around having postmortems and retreats and <laughs> drinking their All drinks. All the Zooms. <laughs> so I was, you know, January comes and I'm starting to recruit volunteers <laughs> for voter registration. I don't know what everyone else is doing. February comes, I'm asking questions. And I was also elected to vice chair of the Palm Beach County Democratic Party last uh, December. So I'm asking, when are we going to go do some voter registration? Oh, they want to plan fundraisers. And I go, okay, no, 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 we got to register voters. By the time March came, Mivasino was launched. We were on the ground. We we're registering voters. 
because that is the work that needed to be done. But it's also that like, we're not trying to do this in a traditional way. Like every time we get new information, we don't care. I mean, this is exactly what you just said. Read, we'll pivot. We don't have any predetermined assumptions. We show up every single day and whatever data we get from the ground, qualitative or quantitative, we pivot. And we've had so many of these things that we never even would have considered. I mean, I think a great one that we were talking about the other day is gender. We actually find that a lot of our young women are way more successful than our young men. And it's not necessarily because they're more talented. It's because of how on the ground societal understandings of gender plays out. It's a lot harder to be approached by a young man than it is by a young woman. There's different threatening factors there. There's just so much of that that comes back to us every single day that we're just not like, oh, well, this is the way it's always been done. So we have to do that. We're like, yeah, okay, F this. We're going to change. We're going to do something different. Can't even tell you how many times we've done that. We've just scratched the entire program, started over, and now we found what works. It took us a few months. We worked through the kinks. We worked through SB90. We worked through COVID and this newest spike. Well, the great thing about the program is that it is modular in a way that you know we can just plug pieces in and out. And it's very data-driven. So we're able to recalibrate as that data emerges very quickly. So you know when we talk about the trend that Devin just lifted up about you know regarding the way that voters and potential voters were reacting to our staff. We did make the adjustment so we could be successful, so we can register voters. But now we're into a phase where, you know, we don't just accept that you know, we can't provide economic opportunity to young men and that we can't get them into organizing, into politics, teach them skills, you know, create job opportunities for them. We're trying to think our way through it. How do we reach this group? You know, where are they consuming their information? What are they interested in? What influences their day? And, you know, we're learning so that way we can try to test some of our messaging, use that data director that we hired very <laughs> early on, you know, so that way we could try to solve this puzzle. We don't want to just accept that, oh, well, we're just not going to be as successful if we hire more young men. No, we're going to work our way through it and we're going to make sure we bring in as many folks as possible. I was just going to give another example that actually happened a few months ago when we launched in Central Florida. We found that our, our vote by mail conversion rate dropped to about 30 percent. And we were like, what the heck is going on? You know, a lot of the immigrant communities in Central Florida, according to the last census data, this confirmed exactly what we already knew. But Osceola County, which is we have our office in Kissimmee, which is in Osceola County, that county increased its population by 45 percent in the last 10 years. It's a very new community. When Hurricane Maria hit, that's where a lot of Puerto Ricans went. Very new community. They don't understand the two-party system. Voter registration looks different here, et cetera, et cetera. So disinformation has a lot deeper roots in these communities. And so when we're asking somebody to vote by mail, what they're saying is, oh, no, I'm sorry. Like, it's not safe. I don't trust it. Right. And so what we were saying and our organizers were saying, well, no, you're wrong. It is safe. You should sign up. As soon as you tell somebody that they're wrong and you know something more than them, they shut down. None of us want to feel stupid. So instead, we messaged around the country, unfortunately. Right. Well, yeah, the Democratic Party messaging issue. We know more than you wagging our finger. And then we wonder why people think we're elite and think we're overeducated, blah, 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 as the story goes. I personally don't have that problem. No one's ever said that guy's overeducated. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Accused me of being too smart. No, no one's ever accused me of that. But what we did with that is we messaged around it just to tie up the story. And we said instead, well, If you enroll in vote by mail, you don't actually have to vote by mail. They're just going to mail you a ballot. It's going to be on your kitchen table. You can take a look. You can research the issues and the candidates and boom, we're back up to over 90% conversion rate. Yeah. We just gave it a different value. We workshopped it, gave it another value. People appreciated that other value and now they're engaged. Well, I mean, everything takes practice. And oftentimes, as you all know, especially in politics, when you have a campaign Look, I worked for Arnold Schwarzenegger in 2006, right, in California. We ran against a guy who was the state treasurer, who nobody had ever heard of. 
We had Arnold Schwarzenegger. This is pre-economic collapse and everything else. We raised $85.5 million for that campaign, and we won by 17 points. They called the election for Arnold 15 seconds after 8 o'clock on election night. We had a whole war room and everything set up, and it was the most perfect campaign we ever ran, right? Well, yeah, it was, but did I learn anything from it? No, because I went right to the John McCain campaign early 2007, <laughs> which was as fucked up as everything could possibly yeah. be, um, and I learned a lot more from that. And so that's the other thing, too, is that sometimes easy success teaches not only no lessons, but also often the wrong lessons. So, guys, let me zoom out a little bit to Florida writ large. So Governor Ron DeSantis is on the march. He has downplayed vaccines in exchange for monoclonal antibody treatments, Regeneron, you know, $5 million donor from Citadel probably helped with that. He has withheld rental assistance. He has withheld pandemic assistance. He has not applied for additional child support payments. He cut off unemployment to say he wanted, quote, things to get back to normal. Now he's done this things around voting. He's doing the things around mass mandates, which more and more counties, including very red counties like Lee County and Southwest Florida, are now turning on. I posit, as I think I did to y'all, that this is just pure politics, right, that he just wants to be president and he's trying to secure that MAGA base. Is it really that simple? I think that it is. I think also Governor DeSantis is assuming that the new cycle won't survive long enough to reach Election Day 22, you know, and that he'll use that fire hose that's been effective over the last couple of years to change the subject to something else. And the current actions that are, you know, people are outraged about, they'll forget about them. And, you know, don't underestimate the power of voter suppression. You know, the Republican base is, they're very bought in, at least those that are tuned into that message, and they're enthusiastic. So it's going to take a lot more for, you know, rational thinking Americans that want to save our democracy to get ourselves together, organize ourselves and get out to the polls. I think that that's definitely a strong factor in, in his long term plan for at least 22. And that's the message that's really starting to take hold in some communities is that Florida is looking at him as an absent leader because he is focused on the White House and no one wants to feel like a stepping stone. This isn't just about DeSantis. It's about the party that's supporting him. And what that party is doing right now is helping him with their disinformation campaigns. So if it's not COVID, it's going to be Afghanistan. After Afghanistan, it's going to be something else. And the disinformation helps DeSantis here. And that's what is honestly so, I don't even have another word, and it's just disgusting. And some of the most anti-American stuff, and I know I'm young, but that I have ever seen. Well, I'm not that young, and it's the worst I've ever seen. Right. I mean, it's just the disregard for American children, for American lives, what we're valuing over that money and political gain. I mean, it's just like never in my life have I been so confused as to how the hell the Republican Party gets to claim that they're the most patriotic party when this is how their leaders are acting. I just, Alex, I, I'm confused. I mean, you said something that we've sort of been positing since last year, which is when it comes to Hispanic communities. And again, I, I went to high school and college in Texas, so I'm more familiar with the Rio Grande Valley. But that was one thing that I sort of intuited was, you know, if you've been a second or third generation Texan on the northern bank of the Rio Grande, you've done what we've asked you to do. You've assimilated. You've become American. So if someone just shoots pro-immigration messages into you for six months as the thing that should be the top of your leaderboard, we shouldn't be surprised by 
the idea that people either A, don't turn out at all, or B, don't turn out for you. But do you think that that has any effect on a DeSantis or the types of people that are supporting him? I mean, I know, look, both Texas and Florida are gerrymandered to, you know, within an inch of their lives. So there's a lot of this stuff that they are very good at from a logistical perspective. But do you think that there is an opportunity to get those folks who consider themselves Americans and Floridians to say, you know, I might be socially conservative in my religious beliefs, in my family beliefs, but now they put my kids on the line. Now they put their education on the line because just like when my ancestors came from Russia or Ireland, the first thing is we got off the boat. Let's make a home for ourselves. Let's get some jobs. Let's like make sure our kids do better than we do. I mean, is there any way to look at this for these guys are not only mortgaging our kids' futures, they're potentially costing them their futures. So I think that message is not necessarily the financial cost that's going to be borne by, you know, the generations coming behind us isn't really reaching people. You know, Hispanic communities, by and large, we make up a disproportionate amount of the service industry. You know, when the pandemic hit, COVID changed what kitchen table issues look like for communities like ours. You know, you can't wait tables from Zoom. You can't do construction remotely. So, you know, this changed the way that we saw how we survive, how we feed our families and how we support ourselves. And so you have a constituency that already sort of leans into that conservative platform, really embrace it. And that's what we saw in those massive numbers last cycle, you know, around COVID. People did not want to see the shutdown. They didn't want to see the lockdown. And so they embraced that platform because they saw it as survival. We certainly didn't anticipate that. When we think about immigration, it's very similar as well. You know, we think that this is not going to be a winning issue with Republicans. And the fact is that most Hispanic communities, they don't want illegal immigrants coming in here. They want people doing it what they would consider the right way, the way they came to follow the process, just like they did. Come in here, put your roots down, work hard. If you want to start a small business, that's the American dream. So the way that they view immigration and immigration is a very complicated topic, it's not so cut and dry. And so I think that what Republicans do successfully is they pull the pin on the grenade and toss it into our hands. Right. And then you look at it for a while and go, oh, it blew up on me. Yeah. And so we're trying to message around, you know, this very complex problem that they've made worse and figure out how do we solve this and let's go talk to people about it. And then they don't receive our message the way we anticipate they will. Because for us, you know, again, we're not talking to people. We're not in the community. We spend our time talking about Hispanic communities and not talking <laughs> with Hispanic communities. And so we're totally blindsided by their response when we talk on these core issues. But so, Devin, just to finish out Alex's thought, which is that, you know, even in a Hispanic community, when it comes to immigration, not everybody's for unfettered open door immigration. Is it just that amongst the Democratic Party, is it just that that's like you can't say that out loud? Is there part of the activist base that if you were to say that out loud, that people would go crazy and that's the fight people don't want? What's the issue? I think the issue is we can't all unite on one thing. And I think that's a part of the issue. I think when we talk about immigration, it's a part of a larger narrative, which the Democratic Party is pretty obsessed with identity politics. And we're pretty obsessed with how people identify, but we don't take a minute to stop and think that maybe people identify in a way different than we identify them. And that's true across the board. And I think the other thing that sometimes what we see in Florida with the most diverse Hispanic electorate in the entire country is that there are so many other data points saying, oh, yeah, I'm Hispanic. What does that really give you? 
Somebody from Puerto Rico and somebody from Venezuela are very different. It's like talking to somebody from New York versus Texas. It's a very different story. So there are other data points that I think we need to be focused on as a party, and that is economic class. That is just as important when we're talking about messaging. Now, I'm not talking about your experience in this country and the different systems that you know we're all a part of, but I'm talking about what matters to us is more economics and economic class than race. And I've done politics in Maine, New York, North Carolina, and now Florida. And I've seen in all of these different communities, it's the same issues that matter. It's the same kitchen table issues. You know, in Maine, you've got trailer parks. It doesn't matter what color the skin is of your next door neighbor. You're both working at the same factory and your kids go to the same school. And that's the unity that I just don't think matters. And I will say one other thing just about democratic messaging, because I think it's important, is that I really don't think still that there's any voter in this country that's off the table for messaging. I think every single person is persuadable. I really, really do. I really despise that talking point within democratic politics, which is we don't talk to Trump supporters. We unfriend them on Facebook. Like you all cost us X, Y, and Z. Like there's a reason people showed up to vote for him. And if you don't want to confront that, you're only going to further that problem. And now people like Alex and I are stuck dealing with that because y'all didn't want to, and you had the privilege to walk away. That's a luxury we don't have. You know, here in Florida, we have to deal with the consequences of these elections. And y'all are. We are. We've we got are. all the villains, Reed. We've we got do. Matt Gates. We've got Rick Scott. We got Trump. <laughs> well, listen, you wouldn't be Florida if you didn't. Yeah, we're, we're comfortable with it. And I think that, you know, we find the silver lining in that in all of the chaos, there is opportunity to get it right. We're breaking through. We're making progress. And while 22 is so close the work that's really going to start to materialize is going to show up in 23 and then 24. And we have the opportunity to just close the door on any Republican candidate for president if they can't win Florida. You know, this is why you know, we really believe the work that we're doing is critical, not just to Florida, but to the nation. Well, listen, and I'll tell you this, too, based on, you know, what Devin said about how seriously Republicans are taking voter registration in Florida. They know it, too. They know it in Texas, too. Like the Republicans understand, like they've abdicated the marketplace of ideas because they don't have any. Because once it becomes money, power and turf, like you might as well just be a gang. Right. Like that's what they are, which is why they have to make it harder for people to vote. That's why they have to make it more confusing. Right. The confusion piece of this is one thing as someone who used to do ballot measures for a living, which also happens in Florida a lot. Remember that confusion equals no. Well, I think at the ballot box, confusion equals it's not worth my trouble. And then, Alex, as you talked about, my vote doesn't count. It's too big a pain in the ass anyway. These people won't listen to me. And so as soon as people get confused, it's that friction that occurs, right? They need to increase that friction to participation. I think we share a perspective on that, and certainly we can't wait to work further together. All right, but I'm going to let you guys go because you've got more important things to do than listen to me yap on. So, Alex, where can we find you and Devin? Where can we find you? And where can we find me, Vicino, online? Where can folks get in touch with you? Oh, uh, well... You'll be able to find me in either uh, Osceola County, <laughs> Palm Beach County. I'm kind of all over the place. But if you want to find us online, you can find us at mevecinoflorida.com. That's M-I-V-E-C-I-N-O-F-L-O-R-I-D-A.com. Devin yeah, does all of our social me, media. Yeah, you can email me. Listen, a lot of people are, you can reach out to me at any time. It's Devin, D-E-V-O-N at mevecinoflorida.com, spelled the same way that Alex just so eloquently spelled that for us. 
And listen, I mean, just thank you so much for having us on. And to everybody listening, we are not blind to the fact that this is a tough fight. We don't have our heads in the sand for this. It's just that we truly do not have another choice and that this is not just a battle about politics. It's a battle for our values as a country and as Americans. And our goal for Mi Vecino is not just registering voters. It's to protect the American dream and to defend it at all costs, because that is something that unites us all on all sides of the aisle, regardless of where you're from. That American spirit and the core of our nation, we have strayed from it, but we can get back to it. And we have a saying in boxing that uh, nobody trains to lose. We're here to win. Amen to that. Well, so are we. Well, listen, folks, as always, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. I want to thank you guys for joining me today. Alex and Devin, thanks so much. Look forward to having you guys back and hearing more about the good work you all are doing in the Sunshine State. And until then, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.